learning in the person is a really, really important part of this process. And we, we, we see this, um, just completed a study recently, uh, one of my students, Katie Pogginsky, uh, where she had people use exoskeletons for about 10 hours, which is a lot longer than most uh, of our own studies or our other studies, and observed how people's expertise with the device changed over that time. And when you first put on the device, if we apply our standard evaluation, you see almost no benefit from the device. And at the end of the process, you know, energy costs, in this case with ankle exoskeletons, energy costs reduced by 40%. So you get this huge benefit when you know how to use the device and when it's optimized to you. But that takes time. It took a couple of hours of exposure for young, healthy participants to, to learn how to, to use the device expertly. And so that's a limiting factor on any of these devices that we field. I mean, you know, you're, you're going to have to use it for hours of walking or running before you start to really get the, the big benefits. And um, we have to think carefully about how to help people bridge that, you know, that excitation energy, right? So that they can actually get into the part where it's, where it's useful. Um, as we move into to trying to apply these same approaches, uh, people say people have uh, had a stroke. Um, you know, there's some reorganization of the nervous system that happens following these neurological injuries that could interact with learning processes. And um, so if, if a person can't adapt to use the device uh, effectively, then they can't can benefit from it, right? All the things that we're trying to accomplish are on the human side of the system. So if the person isn't adapting, um, they are not benefiting, right? Uh, and in those cases where learning might be more challenging, we have to really think about what, uh, a few different ways to, to tackle that. One, one is what experiences do we need to give the person so that the nervous system can identify, oh, there's, I should learn a new approach. Uh, and you, know, you can try training people with variation training or biofeedback, things like that. We've seen some cases uh, in more basic scientific research where that can be really effective. Um, and the other thing is just yeah, making sh sure that we are assisting in all the ways that are needed in order for the person to, to adapt uh, beneficially. It may be that, um, you know, when we, with a, a, a person that has a, a large capacity for adaptation, uh, then just, you know, pinging the system over here is enough. And they change the rest of their movement so that this little ankle thing is helping their knees and their hips and, and everything else. But uh, it might be, if you if you're have less capacity for adaptation, maybe we need to assist those other joints more directly. Things like that. So I'm curious about both of this experience that you have, have been doing. Uh, yeah, this redirection, for example, you, you suppose to that should work in a certain way or be in the modeling or simulation. And in reality, when you try to experiment it, it was maybe counterintuitive or surprising result. You didn't expect that. Do you have any moment like that? Oh, sure. I mean, uh, the path I'm on right now is all really a reaction to a, a big experience like that as a PhD student. So as an undergraduate student, we did this passive dynamic walking robot stuff, and I was excited about it. But, you know, with no offense to my colleagues, uh, walking robots, I, you know, in terms of the direct societal benefit, uh, um, so I wanted to try to apply some of these ideas in a way that could really help people more directly. And so um, 
PhD student at, at the University of Michigan and started trying to apply some of these ideas to a prosthetic feet. And we had a great idea that uh, we're going to uh, capture some energy that's normally dissipated in the spring, and then later we're going to return it. And our passive dynamic walking models say this should make uh, walking more efficient and save the user a lot of energy. And you know, we had some promising-looking initial results um, with you know, people who didn't have amputation wearing like a simulator boot. But when we, after you know, years of designing different versions of the device, we got to tests on people with amputation, and uh, what we found is that it actually made walking harder, and and they didn't like it. So th that was um, that was a real shock. You know, I I coming into this as a young person, um, you have to be a little bit overconfident to try some of these crazy things, right? And uh, it didn't work out at all the way I had hoped. And uh, it really made me stop and think about, you know, the, the whole approach we were, we were employing and how we could do it differently to, to try to, to avoid that kind of thing in the future. And hence, really versatile systems where you can try lots of things because they're going to fail and, and that sort of thing. So, I, so that, um, you know, I, and I see this in a lot of people around me. You have these apparent failures, you have these these. Uh, cases where things didn't go the way you expected, but you learn something really important from that experience that puts you on a new path and allows you to, to really advance your, your field or discover something new and exciting. So, yeah, uh, don't, don't, be, don't be scared of those failures. Look them right in the eye, you know, and, and learn from them, I think. I like that, <laughs> yeah. But I guess it's given that case about um, when you mentioned the example, but do you think the concept of being having the resilience already, I, I'm curious in human, when it comes to you try to design that in, in your lab, do you think the concept of resilience or redundancy has a room that you think maybe can deploy it or, or uh, not not applicable in a scenario like that? Have redundancy or resilience? Yeah, I, it's, a, it's a really good question. I, uh, um, how adaptable are people? What, um, how much of a change can we make and still have people learn to perform well in this new circumstance? And that's something we think a lot about actually. Uh, for example, you know, in one of our recent experiments, we assisted hips, knees, and ankles, both legs, with this you know, big powerful exoskeleton optimized assistance and you know, trained people so they were really expert and um, energy consumption was reduced by 50 percent but if we throw that that same cap capability into a, a musculoskeletal simulation model the model will suggest you should be able to reduce energy costs closer to 90 percent or nearly 100 percent so what's happening why why doesn't it happen um, in the real experiment? Well, I, you know, probably we're missing some things and there's some important functionality that's not provided by the device, sure. But there also might be some limits to how much of a change in coordination uh, the, the nervous system is, is ready for or you know, can handle. Um, 
and you know, as I mentioned earlier, some of, some of these um, limits in, in resilience could be evident in um, our less uh, exciting uh, results so far when applying really similar techniques in our prosthetic limbs for people with amputation or um, you know, very preliminary work in uh, exoskeletons among people with stroke. That's a very important point. I'm just asking you, like, where do you think that's, yeah, maybe the contributing factors to that? Is it funding or grants or culture? Where does it come from? Sure, all of those things, right? We, uh, we uh, have a system that um, rewards uh, breakthroughs and, and productivity as measured by certain to, to count things like how many papers and how many citations and so on. And it's, you know, uh, you can understand how this has evolved over the last several decades, um, but it does incentivize some uh, strategies that aren't in the best interest of academia as a whole or society as a whole. And, and you know, you if you get on social media and, and um, read what you're your fellow scientists and postdocs and PhD students are posting. I mean, you got a lot of high stress. There's a lot of pressure and um, a lot of self-promotion. And um, how do we get away from that? I don't have uh, the, the magic bullet. I, I don't know. But I think that some, some of the things we might consider are changing our publication uh, model. Um, you know, I, I have to be an editor for a fancy journal, but I think we place a lot too much weight on publishing in fancy journals. And, um, you know, so it's kind of a brittle way of assessing impact because you've got one or two people looking at a paper and trying to guess whether it's important. And, you know, maybe it's the middle of the pandemic and they've been up all night with their kid. Maybe their kids are, are stuck home from school right there and they're watching the kids while they try to <laughs> read your draft. And um, it, so it's not, it's not very robust against misperceptions of uh, these decision makers. Whereas if you say um, base impact assessments on a broader set of uh, evaluators uh, by getting the work out there quickly and then getting um, feedback from lots of people, I think that could be helpful. There's a, there's a, a, a publication model that's been making its you know, people whisper about in the background for, for a few decades now where uh, we get rid of journals and we just, everybody publishes their work. And then the, the way that you uh, develop credibility is by, is through public reviews. And I think that that kind of approach is worth considering. And you see little moves in that direction from some places. And that would also help with some of these issues of, uh, you know, the financial structure around publication as well.